Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. Nothing will bring my brother back or any of the other people that we lost in this horrible ordeal. An inquiry into the Nova Scotia mass shooting highlights RCMP failures and calls for major change. We hear from one of the commissioners who wrote the recommendations. And a lawyer for women's advocacy groups tells us what the report says about gender-based violence and the safety of women. Plus, how are the parties and the leaders positioning themselves around the federal budget? Our political observers weigh in. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, in for Michael Serapio. The inquiry into the mass shooting that left 22 people dead in Nova Scotia has delivered its final report. The Mass Casualty Commission documenting a long list of police failures before, during and after that rampage nearly three years ago. And among their 130 recommendations, closing the RCMP's longtime training depot in Regina. A clear policy on the relationship between the RCMP and the public safety minister. A major external review and restructuring of the force, and commissioners also say the RCMP should adopt a policy of admitting its mistakes. Among our recommendations, we are calling for major changes to RCMP oversight, processes, and culture. A process to rethink the structure of policing in Nova Scotia, a national review of public alerting, greater focus on addressing and preventing the root causes of violence in our communities, including gender-based violence, intimate partner violence, and family violence, and a much expanded and more collaborative model to ensure community safety and well-being. So I have yet to go through the, the, uh, the recommendations. Uh, so. Uh, more to come because, as I said, we have a team that stood up that is actually going through the recommendations right now, and there will be an action plan to go forward. And that was the RCMP's interim commissioner earlier in Truro, Nova Scotia. Kim Stanton was one of three commissioners on the Mass Casualty Commission. Thanks for joining me, Commissioner Stanton. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Your report offers a very detailed timeline on those terrible 13 hours in April of 2020, and it flags numerous police failings and even a lack of some basic policing techniques, things like knowing the terrain, alerting the public, communicating among first responders. How much work does the RCMP face in order to be prepared with situations like this? It does face some work, but it can be done. We set out a pathway for how the RCMP and any police agency can ensure that the pre-critical incident response planning and preparation is done and done well. We dedicate a whole section of our report to everyday policing and uh, the ways in which basic policing tasks can be done better and to set people up for uh, the ability to, to have a critical incident response that is effective, that keeps uh, police officers safe and that um, helps keep community safe. You are calling for some big changes for the RCMP and saying that Canadian society faces a reckoning on policing. So 
based on what you've seen and heard over this inquiry and since, how confident are you about these changes actually being put in place? I think we're at a moment in Canadian society where people are really wanting to uh, look at how we can be safer, how we can keep one another safer. Uh, we're also at a moment where we're really looking at how do we want police to do better and be a, a more uh, cohesive part of our uh, our community safety and well-being. And I think people are ready for there to be a change in how we go about that. And we talk about really looking at prevention first. So rather than getting to the point where we're enforcing uh, the criminal law or responding to a critical incident, how do we prevent violence in the first place? And there are uh, lots of ways in which we in our communities can start to do that one-on-one. -on -one. And uh, we, uh, we think that the police also, we heard from members of the police who really want to do better as well. And we want to equip them to do better. So I think it's, uh, I think it's time. Your report does acknowledge that there have been many previous calls for RCMP reform. So I'm curious, you know, going through your recommendations, how many of your calls for action overlap with what we've seen at previous inquiries, but just haven't been implemented yet? One of the things that we did from the outset was uh, in our mandate, we were asked to look at prior inquiries and reports that were relevant to our mandate. And we did an environmental scan of 2000 recommendations from prior inquiries. And the way that we proceeded was to say, are these uh, recommendations that have been made before, and if they have, were, were, uh, why weren't they implemented? And Or are they new to this inquiry? And we uh, have dedicated a volume of the report to implementation and uh, identified some of the past barriers and suggested a way forward. And we suggested a mutual accountability body that would include members of the affected communities of those most affected um, from the April 2020 mass casualty, from the police, from the federal and municipal and provincial governments to hold one another to account and to report publicly on the progress of implementation. All right, one item that you wanna see progress on is a national review of public alert systems. So tell me what you want to see happen and how fast do you think changes can come? Right. So it's apparent to us that uh, there are uh, improvements that can be made in terms of the public alerting system. And uh, the um, there is a review that's coming up in any event to public alerting uh, with respect to the current partners that are there. And we say, take a look at the governance. Um, Canada is unique in the world in that we have a um, private corporation that is um, uh, essentially the governance um, a part, party for our public alerting. And we believe that the federal government Ministry of Public Safety uh, should really be in that role and that there should be engagement with provincial and municipal partners and territorial and Indigenous partners in in the uh, alerting uh, system. And we think it's actually uh, very important that it happen soon. Another element of your report uh, looks at the urban-rural divide on some of these issues when it comes to uh, policing, access uh, to services. Uh, and you say rural Canadians 
not just in Nova Scotia, but uh, elsewhere across the country aren't being as well served as they could be. Uh, why is that? And how does that play into your report as you went back and looked at the events of 2020? So one of the things that we focused on throughout the inquiry was the rural context in which this mass casualty occurred. And uh, it's really important to take into account that context because it's just the case that it's further between detachments, uh, it's further uh, in terms of uh, response times for people living in rural and remote parts of the country, and that's a lot of Canada. And uh, what we found in our review of policing uh, and a number of the other uh, aspects of our mandate is that policy is generally speaking designed for urban uh, centers and not really taking into account the rural context. And we have uh, we had a, a significant amount of information provided to us that really lays out how important it is for uh, provinces and territories uh, to take into consideration the needs, the resourcing needs in, in rural areas. Uh, there is uh, uh, a number of factors that cause uh, there to be a different um, uh, context for people living in, in rural areas, and, and it needs to be addressed. All right, uh, Commissioner Kim Stanton, there's a lot in this report to go over. Certainly we'll be looking at it in the coming days uh, and weeks, not just today. So thank you for taking the time with me today. We're so grateful that you took the time. Thanks so much. Take care. Sean McLeod was one of the mass shooting victims on April 19th, 2020. His brother Scott was in Truro today as the Mass Casualty Commission delivered its report and recommendations. Nothing will bring my brother back or any of the other people that we lost in this horrible ordeal. But, you know, we have to, we have to take and move things forward. And at least if we can get the positive side of this and move things forward, it will, you know, you know that these people didn't lose their lives for nothing. It's, it's going to, if it makes a positive change that's nationwide, it will be, it'll be appreciated, I know, by families. Let's get more reaction to the Mass Casualty Commission report and what it says about gender-based violence and the safety of women. Erin Breen is a lawyer who represented several women's advocacy groups at the commission. She's also in Truro, Nova Scotia today. Ms. Breen, good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, much of the report, and in fact, more than half of today's recommendations deal with policing, the RCMP specifically. So I want to start with your reaction to what the commission says about the RCMP and gender-based violence, which was your focus in going before the commission last year. Uh, yes, um, so our coalition was very much focused on the gender-based violence uh, mandate of the Commission. And upon first glance, I haven't had much time to review the report as a whole. It's, it's a very large report, seven volumes. But I did scan through, in particular, the, um, the, the volume on violence where, where our contribution was focused. We are pleased, certainly, with the fact that uh, our submissions before the Commission appear to have been uh, received, taken seriously, and adopted into the report. Uh, so what we really pushed for 
is a move away from the carceral system as the default response to gender-based violence, because it is clear, and all of the experts certainly testified it's clear, it is not solving the problem. In fact, things are getting worse. We need a completely different approach. And that approach involves uh, looking to the community and community-based organizations, um, corrections and police as being the center of the response. They continue to be a layer not the default response. So uh, I haven't had an opportunity to view in detail the chat, the, uh, the policing volume, but certainly uh, what, what I did see is that the commission recognized uh, that, uh, you know, gender-based violence was not uh, addressed anywhere adequately at any point in time by the RCMP over the course uh, of the life uh, of the perpetrator in this case, and that on numerous occasions, um, you know, people, community members were aware of this, the police became aware of his violence, uh, and he got a pass. So things desperately need to change, uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into that, uh, that policing volume as well. Right, and, and so let's talk about some of the other recommendations then that, that deal with gender violence, intimate partner violence, and family violence, uh, you've talked about the police, but there's also uh, the root causes of that violence and how that can be countered. Uh, what are some of the key items that you've seen in this report that you're looking at, that you're looking for governments to act on? I think that the key uh, issue here is the commissioners have equated the social determinants of health with social determinants of community safety. Uh, so they've recognized uh, that when people are living in poverty, when people are living uh, without adequate resources, in particular people who are in rural areas, and some that, um, you know, this puts them at an increased risk uh, for experiencing gender-based violence. Uh, so it's a it's what the commission is urging is a public health response to what is an epidemic, and it has to be a full societal shift, and with everyone on board. And, and you will see that this is not just directed as at police or the justice system or corrections. This is directed at every office in Canada. It's directed uh, in every workplace. Uh, in our school system, a full uh, recommendation for early education, starting in kindergarten, going to grade 12, in how we as community members can uh, react, can uh, effectively uh, conduct bystander intervention, all of these issues that clearly uh, were a problem in this particular case. I want to ask you as well about the shooter's common law spouse. The report does talk about Lisa Banfield saying she was not treated properly as a victim. Tell me why that is so important. Well, it, it's so important because she was the first uh, victim in the mass casualty. However, uh, she was criminalized. She was charged criminally by the RCMP. Uh, and, you know, uh, she initially uh, was interviewed and asked to provide information to help police, believing that you know, she was assisting, that she was trying to assist everyone who had been harmed by him by giving the information that she had. Suddenly, the tables turned on her. Uh, RCMP ends up charging her, 
And from her own testimony, she said initially she received great support in the community. However, once she was charged criminally, she became a target of public scorn and hatred. So I think the commission recognized this at an early stage, that she was demonized uh, and that we as a society have got to do better. We've got to educate ourselves and this victim blaming that goes on cannot continue. All right, we will have to leave it there. Obviously, a lot to process in today's report, not just what happened three years ago and before that, but also what's going to happen in the future. Aaron Breen, thank you for your insight. Thank you so much. The Prime Minister and Nova Scotia Premier were also at the report release in Truro today. Here's initial reaction from Justin Trudeau and Tim Houston. We will take the time now to properly digest and understand the recommendations and the conclusions and the um, opportunities that the Commission has put forward for us to take up. There's no question there need to be changes, and there will be, but we will take the time to get those right. The commitment of the of the province is very strong for safer communities, um, for sure. And you know, starting with um, <clears throat> one of the the um, recommendations that the uh, Commissioner McDonald, I think, was talking about today was just to to have an oversight committee to make sure that things get done um, in 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 cooperation with the federal government. So we're 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 on we're on board for that. Starting starting there for sure, and our commitment to safer communities is strong. We're now two days removed from the latest federal budget, so how are the parties and the leaders positioning themselves politically? Let's get some insight from our panel of political observers. Susan Smith is the principal of the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Melanie Paradis is the president of Texture Communications. And Kim Wright is principal of Wright Strategies. Welcome back to all three of you. Susan, Thanks, I want to start with the government's framing of their measures on the green economy. The budget document says Canada will not be left behind competing for investment uh, with the US, with other countries, that the green transition is our generation's equivalent of the transcontinental railroad, that national dream of 150 years ago. So we're seeing some lofty language combined with big tax credits for electricity and, and other specific sectors. It seems to be a fairly big bet, Susan. Are there risks here? Risk, but I think the rewards are even higher. And all we need to do is look to, uh, south to the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act, known as the IRA, and the 300, over $360 billion in incentives that the U.S. is putting on the table to try and kickstart uh, a, a clean economy and, and, and um, green, clean and green manufacturing. So Canada had two choices, do nothing, and still be hewers of wood and, and drawers of water because we have the critical minerals and the other, other elements to participate in this. Or option number two, which is the government, the option the government is hoping the business sector takes and is trying to create a scenario where they do, is to step up, step in and own our own, create and own our own space in the green economy. Like I said, we have the critical minerals, we've got to get them out of the ground. We know that electricity is going to, is already driving what we need as an economy. If you think people at home, just think about all the things they have to plug in and we're not even at the stage where we're plugging in vehicles and so on. 
cleaner, greener economy needs cleaner, greener technology. It's not the government's job to put all the money into that. It's companies' jobs to do that. But if the government can create incentives for companies to invest through tax rebates, that can encourage that kind of investment and create new clean jobs and sustainable jobs for Canadians, and we can lead the sector. So that's the bet the government's making. I'm comfortable with that bet because it requires um, researchers and companies to step up, but clearly it's something we want to do and have to do as a, an economy. So I think it's a move in the right direction, right. definitely. And, and Kim, so we're now seeing ministers fanning out to sell the budget, including the finance minister, but it's interesting, Jagmeet Singh is planning his own post-budget tour over the next two weeks, which isn't something we normally see from an opposition leader. He's visiting eight cities uh, to take credit for that extra GST rebate and for the dental care spending in the budget, but he's still saying he's unsatisfied when it comes to EI reform and taxes and pharmacare. Where does this budget leave the NDP? Well, look, and viewers will remember, there was the confidence and supply agreement. But as part of that, there were very tangible measures we were looking for from the government of Canada to put into a budget so that the new Democrats could still be supportive of it. That included dental care, which viewers will remember had been in a previous liberal uh, platform elections. Uh, two elections ago, got dropped this one. And so Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats made sure that that remained a priority because it is for people who are younger, certainly uh, older folks. Dental health is one of those things where if you take care of your teeth, it actually becomes the gateway to take care and taking care of general health. And what we've also seen has been a massive influx of people who had been using emergency room services to have their dental problems solved. So this is actually good for the economy, good for personal health and good for mental health. So there's lots to be celebratory uh, for Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats and what they pushed on pharmacare and on the GST rebate against grocery stores. So he should be out there taking credit for that because if he wasn't, well, that's kind of silly of him to lose that opportunity and that momentum to build on those wins and further wins. But there were certainly some things in this budget that we didn't see for decades, certainly the last uh, few years in particular, but certainly over the last 20 years. The lack of funding for municipalities who are dealing with settlement services, settlement services for refugees that are coming in, City of Toronto being a massive uh, home to new, new immigrants and, and newcomers, they were supposed to continue to get funding for that or get some funding for that. They have been left holding the bag, and that has caused a massive shortfall for municipalities, let alone that we're not seeing the transfers on affordable housing and new housing starts and uh, CMHC unlocking some of those revenues. So there's things that Jagmeet Singh and the New Democrats can be excited about, but there are so much more that municipalities in particular have been left behind on. Okay, so Melanie, let's look at the Conservatives then, because although, you know, Kim is talking about some of the, the schisms that are still there between the Liberals and NDP, uh, still with that confidence agreement, uh, you know, Conservatives are kind of calling this budget a Liberal NDP co-production, I guess. And you have Pierre Polyev calling for lower taxes and less spending. Now, reporters have been pressing him on whether he'd maintain those low carbon tax credits or dental care funding. We know Stephen Harper has been suggesting that Saving big policy ideas uh, should happen. You should be saving those ideas for the next campaign. But what specifics should Canadians expect to see in a conservative fiscal plan? Well, I think certainly there there probably would have been more to shore up trust in, in our economy, in our banking regime in particular. Um, I personally have, have been quite concerned 
about uh, CMHC's really low level of deposit insurance coverage for Canadians. I think that we should see a a significant increase there. It hasn't been increased in almost 20 years now. It's currently at about $100,000 per per deposit account. Um, And in the United States, it's it's $250,000. So they, they had the opportunity to include something like that in the budget, and they just completely failed to do so. I do, however, want to take a page from uh, Aaron O'Toole's recent op-ed in, in, in his Substack, where he talked about how we need to we do need to, to highlight a couple of the good things here. Um, I want to agree with Kim that dental care, universal dental care access, is something that we should all be very happy is is in this budget. Um, I hope that it is a very successful program. Uh, I don't care which government, which partisan government puts this in into uh, into place. I hope that it's a success because Canadians deserve this. So I'm very excited that that's in there. I'm also really excited that Todd Doherty's long championed suicide prevention hotline made it into the budget. Um, that's something that hasn't gotten a lot of pickup. There's also a commitment to fund leave for families who experience pregnancy loss, which Blake Richards championed uh, for a long time. So there, there have actually been um, a few conservative wins that were in this budget um, that I think we should all be quite pleased to see. Okay, well, on that cross-partisan note of positivity, uh, we're going to switch gears to another story that is perhaps a little more contentious on Parliament Hill. Susan, Conservatives are criticizing the new Interim Ethics Commissioner. Martine Richard is the sister-in-law of Cabinet Minister Dominique LeBlanc. The government says all rules are being followed, but is that going to be enough of an explanation, especially given that the former commissioner found Mr. LeBlanc in a conflict of interest in 2018? Yeah, this one's a bit of a head scratcher to me. I think um, we have to divide things into two at first, which is to, you know, I think you're talking about someone who's been an employee and a good employee for 10 years in an organization and risen up in the organization and hired through the hired when uh, Prime Minister Harper was in place. Uh, But then the flip side of it is she is the sister in law to the cabinet minister. Um, This one's a bit of a head scratcher for me. just the pure optics on it are bad. I have, I'm sure, uh, the person in question is highly competent, uh, highly skilled, highly ethical, all of the above. But in this particular case, uh, I think I would have made other choices. All right, Melanie, let's get your take on this because we've seen, you know, conservatives raising this issue in the House this week. Yep, I think that from my perspective. This underscores why we need to move some of these jobs out of Ottawa. I think Ottawa is way too small of a town. Too many people are related to each other. Too many people are friends with each other, have dinner with each other, all of those things. And it just creates um, too many opportunities for perceived conflicts of interest like this one. Uh, We should be moving the Office of the Integrity Commissioner to Flin Flon, Manitoba, to anywhere but Ottawa, because that's really the only place where it's going to be truly independent. I think we should actually see a lot of our bureaucracy spread out across Canada, and that would alleviate many of these problems. All right, and Kim, we'll give you the last word on this. What do you think of this whole story, uh, the Interim Ethics Commissioner and connections to a current member of Cabinet? Yeah, I think that there are millions and millions and millions of qualified Canadians who could have taken this job on. This is an unforced error on the government. In fact, this person had been raised, I believe, during the SNC-Lavalin situation as the same sort of situation related to Dominic LeBlanc. How can you clear people in ethics when this your family members who you'll see at Christmas dinner, presumably, would be part of an investment? 
There was, but the same issue came forward, Susan. I guess that's my question. Did they not learn from this being an issue of a person who is far too close uh, to the inner workings of the government to be able to recuse themselves? Look, I think that there are things where within politics, we do need to give some leeway to the fact that there are lots of interpersonal dynamics. And that needs to be considered, especially when we look at um, ethics and integrity, but also when we look at lobbyist registries and all of that. There needs to be some leeway given, but in this case, the person who's going to be the new top dog in charge of ethics and integrity should probably not be on somebody's Christmas list. All right, we'll have to leave it for there this week. Thanks to all three of you. Andrew, Thank it's you. just one last bit on that. It's okay. an interim position. It doesn't make it any more right. It's not the new permanent position. It's an interim position while they name a new person. Uh, but so as I like said, it's like a pilot project, Susan. They continue it's on. It's a head scratcher. Okay, thanks to all three of you. And that's our show for tonight. I'm Andrew Thompson. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching.